We are in the beginning, first chapter of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Undoubtedly the most famous and perhaps most quoted teaching of Jesus in all of Scripture. We've come through 12 verses where the opening statement of Jesus as crowds rush in is this idea of blessedness. What does it mean to be happy, to be whole, to flourish in what God has designed us to be? We come now to the 13th verse where he is going to describe what we are in our identity and the way that that's supposed to flow out of our lives. So I want to read Matthew 13 through verse 16 in the fifth chapter. And I'm going to pause and I'm going to pray for us. This is the fifth chapter of Matthew, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together just for a moment. Father, we confess that there is a gap sometimes a full-on chasm between what we confess and know and what we apply and experience. And I'm aware, even in a moment of teaching now, I have some time in front of me and a microphone. There is a temptation to not fully understand or to Experience what we confess concerning Scripture. This word is not dull. The teaching of Jesus is not dim, but bright. It's not dead, but living. And so I ask that you would help us by your Spirit to be made more alive as we interact with Scripture. Help us to Pull away from all that pulls on us in the world. God, I ask especially for distractions, for the grief, the cynicism, the difficulty that we carry with us. We want for a few moments here to be empowered by your Spirit. You, good Father, give good gifts to your children. So we ask you, give your Spirit to open eyes for us, to soften our hearts, to not just go through the motions. but to know at a soul level what it is that we confess. These words are life, so give us life now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I grew up three miles along a quiet, straight, flat little highway, three miles from the Minnesota border. And as a North Dakotan, There was a lot about Minnesota and Minnesotans that I admired, if I'm honest. Like every border state, there was a bit of a rivalry, but if you really got down to the soul of of me, I would have said, you know, there's a few things I really admire and perhaps even envy about Minnesota. 
It had trees. It had some change of elevation. You could almost call them hills at certain points if you looked just right. Minnesota had lakes. You're probably inferring by now these are all things that we did not have. Minnesota had professional sports. Minnesota had cities big enough to show up on normal maps of the United States. Minnesota had malls described not as any old mall, but the mall of America. Minnesota had funny accents. Minnesota had Garrison Keillor. So there was a lot that I remember thinking, you know, Minnesota's pretty cool if I'm honest. But I could also tell you that there were a few things that I did not understand concerning Minnesota and really made me proud to not be from there. Not the least of which is that during the winter months when ice and snow covered the landscape, the known world over for me as a child, Minnesota made a strange, curious decision that rather than covering their roads for better stability for cars and people walking, rather than covering them with salt like sensible people did in North Dakota, or with sand, they covered it with salt. And what I knew from the time that I was a child is that if you wanted to point out a Minnesota car, you know, before I knew about license plates or anything, you simply would look at the cars that had to trudge through that state, through all of their mess of ice and snow, all the while salt being stirred up in a soupy, dirty mess from their tires, and the entire bottom undercarriage of their car coming up onto the paint itself was a grotesque milk mustache-like look on the cars. And I remember thinking, this is absurd. You know, a little dirt on a car looks normal if there's some sand, but salt. More than that, my grandfather taught me from a young age, that you never wanted to buy a used car from Minnesota. He'd say, you know what salt does? It just corrodes everything and gets in there. You never know. The whole thing's just a pile of junk. The absolute worst decision. Fool of all fools. To my grandfather would have been not only to buy a Minnesota used vehicle, but a Ford. He let it be known to me many, many times that if I did such things, I would be out of the family. You see, Minnesota had made a curious decision to take salt, which we're going to find in this passage here in a second, to take salt and to throw it down on the ground to be used for nothing but trampling under cars. And part of the argument that I think Jesus wants to make, and that I'm going to make today, especially as a a proud non-Minnesotan, is that this is a suboptimal use of salt. That we are to imagine that God's gift in salt, especially when identified with us, is broader and deeper and more useful than that. So as we look at these few verses together, I'm going to give some words, some concepts for us to hang some thoughts on. Here's a few of the hooks. These are the words that will be hooks for us to think through. One word is strange. Strange. And we want to talk about, well, what does it mean for us to be, or for Christians or followers of Jesus, to be strange? 
The second word should be obvious, because we just talked about it, but salty. What does it mean to be salty? I know salty has its own connotation. I don't know if you know that, but it, at least at some point over the last number of years, salty made a bit of a comeback among, among the, the young people. That if you tried too hard or were too bitter or were too annoying in a game or something, you were salty. So the question is, what kind of thoughts should we have concerning being salty? And then finally, the idea of shining. Shining, what does light do but shine? That's the question that we're going to ask. So strange, salty, and shining. Those are the hooks. I want to think through them with you. The first thing to note is that I believe that Jesus is inviting us in giving us our identity as salt and light, two very common things but good illustrations, is to remind all of those who would follow him that they are to be, by design, strange. That there is something about both of these ideas that sets them apart from what is happening around those items. Now, this should be obvious because the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, remember, the crowds have been pushing in on Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he's the center of attention and a crowd just shuffles along with him. If you try to imagine what this would have looked like if you had an aerial view, if you were in the blimp over Jesus' life and the crowds would follow him around wherever he went, think four-year-old soccer field. Where ball goes, all kids go, Right? Think one of those little magnetic faces you had, I had as a kid with a magnet pen and you pressed it on it and all the little magnet uh, particles would rush to it and you could put a cool mustache on the man. Think Tiger Woods at golf tournament. Every tee box he's at, every fairway crowd's just shuffling around. This is Jesus' life. Everyone wants to hear what he says about the good life. And on this moment with his disciples in front of him and those listening over shoulders... Jesus opens his mouth and he teaches them by saying strange things. He says, let me tell you what happiness and wholeness looks like. You want to know how to be blessed and flourish? And then he has a string of words. Poor, mourning, meekness, hunger, thirst, persecution. And by design, those who are listening would have thought, this is strange. There's something slightly off or odd about this. It got to the point, perhaps, when it was even so discouraging because Jesus says, you're going to be strange enough that others will persecute you and revile you. They will utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And it could be that those who were in the crowd who had shuffled along after the miracles, those who had committed and left everything for Jesus, maybe... They were thinking, I don't know what I signed up for. I don't want to be weird. And then we turn to verse 13. And it seems to me as though what Jesus is saying is, is he is doubling down and turning strangeness on its head. He's doubling down on strangeness, but encouraging those who are listening that there is a certain kind of strangeness that must be embraced by Christians or we lose the value of what it means to follow him. Perhaps we could even admit that due to persecution or reviling or even the fear of those things, the imaginary fear of those things sometimes, that we have a temptation to want to merely just fit in, to go with the flow of things because no one wants to be 
strange. Especially if it's going to cost you. And so Jesus begins to say in verse 13, it is going to be inevitable that you would be slightly strange. Salt has a kind of taste. Salt is different than the rest of the ingredients for food. Salt has a purpose. If salt is in something, especially a lot of salt, you notice. Salt is noticed. It's a little strange. Light is noticed. That seems to be the point. There is a visibility to these things. He says no one lights a a lamp and intentionally hides it. The point is to be seen. Have you ever tried to be in darkness? I'm the kind of person I like to sleep in darkness. You like to sleep in darkness? Maybe you're like me. Sometimes you make the terrible mistake of buying the charger that has the little LED light on it to let you know that it's working. I usually want to say to it, I'll, I'll, I'll be the judge of that. I can figure out if it's working. You don't have to tell me with an annoying light. And so if I'm trying to sleep, there's sometimes where I am relentless about seeking out light. It is so noticeable to me. It could be the one single lumen floating around the room, and I am Elmer Fudd on a hunt for this thing. You see, light, especially amidst darkness, can't help but stand out. It's just there. It's like stars against a perfectly dark sky. A glimpse of fire coming from a dark fireplace. Christians, followers of Jesus, must embrace at the core that in a world that is fallen, in a world that is dark, in a world that is decaying, being slightly strange is what marks us. I think you could go through the history of the church and find that when the Christian church, and especially its people and its worship, has become too normal, it is on a down track. Strangeness, done rightly, is a Christian ethic. A slight oddness against the fallen world, if the world is a domain of darkness, if a world has been dulled by sin and the fall, then the life of Christ ought to stick out. There's a kind of sanctified sore thumbness to Christians. And we should embrace this. Now, before I move on, I hope that you're asking this kind of question. Well, what kind of strangeness? Because if we're honest, some of us are killing it at being strange. You just think to yourself, oh, I got this on lock. Are you serious? Strange has been my thing since I was born. And if we're not careful, we could be strange for strangeness' sake or be strange in all the wrong ways. When I think about my childhood, there was a lot about Christianity that was strange. I'm not sure it's what Jesus was talking about. Don't just be strange. But you should ask the question, well, what does he mean and how does this work? And so, because Jesus is such a good teacher, he's going to give us a couple of things to think about. Some images. He doubles down. It's like this, he says, and it's like this. First, it's like salt. He's going to say, be strange by being salty. And he tells them, I think, in an encouragement. I love that he says, you are. He doesn't say, you know, if you try real hard, you could be. He doesn't say, I know you're cinnamon. 
but just strive. Or he doesn't say, some of you could be salt. He tells them, no, you follow me. You are the salt of the earth. This is an encouragement. This is what he's designed you to be. And then he tells you that being salty is how you should be strange. So we want to ask the question, what does it mean to be salt? Have you heard this phrase? It's pretty common. Oh, salt of the earth. Remember the first time that someone used that as a phrase to describe someone else, and I thought it was pretty hip, pretty cool. I think there's a couple of ways that salt is strange. The first is taste, and the second is to preserve. And I don't want to gloss over or shoot too far past taste, but we're going to get to preserve in a second. And the reason I don't want to shoot past taste is because that's what Jesus says here in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, and then what's the problem that he introduces immediately if salt has lost its taste? Now, that's an interesting phrase. We're going to borrow a lot from Luke today. Luke is, is a, another one of the Gospels. And when you study a Gospel, you get to kind of pick, where am I going to compare and contrast? So I'm going to Luke. He says the same thing there in Luke verse 14. He's, he points out, the thing about salt that is good is taste, he says. Verse 34 of Luke 14. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? That's how Jesus puts it. What's the emphasis? What's the goodness that could be lost? The thing that makes salt salt, Jesus leads with taste. Now, here's the odd thing about salt as a taste. What does it taste like? Everyone ask that question? It seems like a dumb question. What does salt taste like, someone might say? You'd want to say, have you lived? It tastes like salt. Has there ever been a successful comparison of some other taste to salt? Except by contrast? You know what salt's like? Salt's like vinegar, but not at all like that. Salt's like... Salt's like salt. The best I could say is that salt as a taste is zesty. Salt as a taste is lively. It's a little biting. It's got in itself a sort of vitality. So that when something is dull, what do you say? You got a big bucket of fries, all the grease is dropping off. You'd think you'd love this because fried food's your thing, but you're eating it and you're saying, you know what? This needs salt. What are you saying? You're saying this needs a little life. This thing is dull and it needs a taste of liveliness and zest. Some of you love that taste so much that you merely eat food as an excuse to down salt. It is life itself. But here's the other thing that's amazing about salt as a taste, this sort of liveliness in it. It it overcomes the blandness. The other thing is, is that it also has a capacity not only to be a taste itself, but to somehow make more bright the tastes that are already present in something. Have you ever experienced this? I was very suspicious of the first person I saw putting salt on watermelon. Have you ever seen this? I thought, what a travesty. Watermelon needs to be left alone. It's delicious. It's bright enough. It's amazing. 
And then I was introduced to salt on watermelon. And a couple of times I thought to myself, you know what? I see the point. Done just rightly, this makes watermelon more watermelony. Because salt can not only provide zest itself, but it's as though it spreads and highlights and activates different taste buds so that flavors themselves become more of what they were designed to be. In this way, salt is a sort of IT person or program in a bad 1980s spy film where there's a terrible Zapruder-type film on screen, and the guy comes in as the captain, and the thing that needs to be done to crack the case is to get the license plate. And so he just looks at the little screen, and he says, what? Enhance. And then magically, the thing that was dim and dull and sort of there becomes perfectly crystal clear, and all is well. Salt is like that. You like something, you say, enhance with salt. And I believe that this is a kind of thing we should not gloss over because the life with Jesus, life in the kingdom is meant to be just that, full of life. And in a world that has become flavorless, a world that promises the best of tastes and pleasures, the reality is is that its taste buds have been dulled and dead for a long time. When the Spirit of God comes and awakens you to the realities of the world, you realize that all the best tastes that are offered to you outside of Christ are like eating after burning your tongue with coffee. Taste buds have been lost. They've been altered. They've been burned. And what salt is meant to do when it's alive and well and in the right amount, it's meant to reset to the world an awakening of its taste for what is good and right and beautiful, what God has designed for it to be. And so Christians live as salt to invite everyone to say things like this, life according to the commands of God is not burdensome. God is not an ultimate cosmic killjoy who hates you and wants you to have no pleasure to get through the drudgery of life. But salt done rightly, us as the salt of the world, I think there's a taste that we offer, a zest itself that then spreads to enhance the God-given flavor of all that he has made. That is the idea, I think, here of salt. Now, there's the reality that we won't fully restore taste until the kingdom is fully restored. But Jesus is saying a profound thing to his followers. You are the salt of the earth, and you should have taste. To be a tasteless, lifeless, zestless community of believers, to Jesus seems unthinkable then you might as well just take that salt and be as foolish as Minnesota. That's what he's saying. Just throw it out. Now, secondarily, salt was used as a massively important preservative in the world. We live in very, very noble, honorable, progressive times. We have technologies that make you forget how difficult it is to keep food good. And even with the best of our world, food still spoils and goes bad. 
But imagine trying to fish and keep fish edible, even from the point of fishing, to when you could maybe smoke it or put it over a fire without refrigeration, without easily attainable and accessible ice. The answer to this oftentimes was simply to cover everything you wanted to be preserved in salt. Salt has an insulating factor. Salt has an ability to take something that is good and to let it hold on for longer. Salt in this way is a force field and a pressure back against entropy. The world has been slowly decaying and dying since the bite of the apple in the garden. And all of us feel its effects and all the things that we touch. And salt has been discovered to be in this world something that if you have a good in front of you, these foods that needed to be ushered on for the very source of life, if you needed to preserve it in some way, you could pack it in salt. And the salt stood between decay and this object. Salt became so important and so valuable at times that it was used as a convenient and easy mode of payment. In fact, the word for salary that we maintain in our language comes originally from salt. At different times, Roman soldiers were paid in salt as a source of value. And I think what Jesus is saying is something like this. That Christians living the way that he calls us to live are those who seek out and surround all that is good and against all odds press back against the decay and the entropy of the world. So we hold on to things and say, I know it seems like it's a failed attempt and it's just going to fall away. I know it seems like the world is just going to go to hell in a handbasket, but I'm holding on and covering and preserving That is what followers of Jesus are supposed to be. And through this lens of preservation, you see why Jesus insists on things. Christians are those who insist on praying even when persecuted. Those who insist on loving even when hated. Those who insist on giving even when spent. Those who insist on dying rather than taking life. Those who insist on running to those who are destitute and far off and otherwise un lovable. Christians are those who seek out truth and say true things have been true and are true and will be true forevermore. And we insulate and we surround and we uphold and we preserve the value of these things into the world. Salt grabs beautiful things and holds on for dear life. Salt grabs life-giving things perhaps even life itself, and says to a world that otherwise wants to let it decay, that we refuse to give up. Salt holds and pushes back decay. And so what Jesus is saying is that inevitably, without fail, those who follow him are this kind of force in the world. God is preserving in a world that is falling apart and where death is everywhere, where it seems like all that is good is being lost. Some may have rushed to Jesus. They're around him. They're saying, tell us, what's the plan? 
How do we escape this? How do we maintain goodness? And Jesus looks out and he points at them and he says, are you following me? Are you following me? Are you with me? This is what this kingdom is going to be. You are the plan to maintain and preserve. We're going to preserve the image of God until this whole kingdom is remade. There's a word of warning in this too. He says, it's no longer good for anything to be, except to be thrown out. I think he's, he knows that the established religious order that was designed to be the light of the world was not functioning in that way and he's warning them. Speaking all the way to the powers that be in Rome. That there is a regime change that has come. So, Christian, you are salt. That's what Jesus says. He also says that not only should you be salty. And remember, like we said with being strange, be strange in the right way. Be salty in the light way. My guess is that all of us could be salty in the wrong ways. In fact, it's funny. It's, I think it's a kind of irony that salty is seen as the opposite of the way that Jesus uses it now. You ever been a part of something good? You got a good group project going, a good vibe. You're on a team or something together, and then the salty person comes in? They do the opposite. They enhance decay and make it go worse because they're constantly complaining. Jesus says, so don't be salty in that way. Some of you are salty in that way. But be salty in this way for taste and preservation. Finally, he says, you are light. This is what you are. You are light. And the idea here is that you are light that is to be seen. That's the thing about light. It's not supposed to be something that is hidden. Twice in Luke, must be a lesson we want to, we need to know well. He says this twice in Luke, the first and the eighth chapter of Luke. No one, after lighting a lamp, covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Then he says again in the 11th chapter of Luke, verse 33, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. It's as though Jesus knows there will be a tendency for those who are following him to not want to be on display. That perhaps the fear of persecution or reviling or just the desire to not be strange or worse than that, the proud desire to want to hold blessing for oneself and keep those other people out, that that kind of light is not fitting as a follower of him. Bonhoeffer once said that any Christian community that insists on or seeks after invisibility is no true Christian community. But those who follow Christ are a light of the world. And here's the interesting thing about light. By its definition, it presses against and makes darkness flee. So in a world that has been dark, in fact has loved darkness rather than light, light comes in and stands out. The other amazing thing about light is that it is not only something to see, but it gives the ability to see. Light itself is necessary to draw out the God-given sight that we have been given. Have you ever been in a cave? Kind of a funny question. One time I got to go deep, deep in a cave outside of Mount Rushmore. Some touristy trap thing 
hey, come in this cave. We said, okay. So we went, <laughs> that sounds, I should be more wise than that. Kids, don't do that if someone asks you. <laughs> so we went on this tour and we go down all these stairs and get down, way down in there. And you know, all along the way, there's basically just Christmas lights that are lining the trail or something. We get down to the bottom and there's a guy there with this dramatic plug. And our guide says, does everyone know where they are? Can you hold on to something? Check where you're standing. Look where we are. Just everybody be safe. Are you comfortable? Are you okay? Because I'm about to turn off the lights. There's going to be no more light. And then he very dramatically counts it down and he pulls the thing out. And I have to tell you, it was a disturbing level of darkness. You would have thought that you had no eyeballs. I could have sworn a second before I had eyeballs, but I'm doing this and I see nothing. I might as well have not had them. You see, God gave me these eyes, a capacity to see, but without light, it was impossible. Light itself activates the ability to see things properly. I was the same as if I had not had that God-given ability at all. Total blindness. Now, that's an amazing fact concerning light. You see, Jesus says, here's what you're like in the world. Not only is it something to see itself, but light, when it spreads, begins to awaken and restore a God-given ability in people that without light other, keeps people in darkness. Otherwise, you cannot see. Light is required for sight. What an interesting thought. And so now imagine a world in a John chapter 1 kind of sense. A world that has been prone to and begins to love darkness rather than light. A world that is pictured groping in blindness. Jesus himself later is going to say in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Pulling back all the way to prophecy from Isaiah that says in a, in a world of darkness, a great light has shone. And that same light of the world says to you, says to those who follow him, says on the side of the mountain to the crowd that's gathered, you are the light of the world. Maybe I could say it this way. Jesus anticipates and promises, in fact, that a rightly strange, rightly salty, rightly shining Christian community will not only be a sight to see, but by the power of His Spirit, give sight to those who desire to see. And you may ask yourself, how am I going to do this? And so Jesus says, He says, in the same way you're going to let your light shine before others, so that, now this is an important phrase, we're going to talk about it in a second. It's so that, not in order that. Greek has a preposition that says, do things for this desired effect. In other words, I am intentionally causing something because I want an effect. But that's not the phrase that's here. He uses so that, and it's much more the idea that when you live in this way, this inevitable thing will happen. And here's what's going to happen. People will see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. I want to ask you a question. 
What do we make of good works? If this is the design, how do we be salt? How do we be light? Well, we let others see our good works. How do we define good works? Peter repeats this exact phrase. I want to stand up for Peter. Sometimes he's the oaf of the disciples. He gets thrown under the bus a lot. He does oafish things, so fair play. But in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He uses the same concept, speaks the words. He must have learned the lesson of Jesus well. Remember when Jesus teaches in the Gospels, it's likely common sayings. So if your buddy says something about the weather, and he always says that thing, you might say, oh, that's so John. Jesus says these things about good works and glorification. Somebody might have said, oh, that's so Jesus. Let me give you one of my tendencies. One of my tendencies is to read, let others see my good works, and to overly churchify it. And here's what I mean by that. I think, well, I know what good works are. You know, like religious good works. But I begin to think about that and I say, what kind of good works are others supposed to see that will make them glorify God? And if I start with basically religious good works, I start to hit some dead ends. Let's say I think to myself, oh, he must mean giving of alms and charity to the poor. But then I think, oh, wait a minute. No, Jesus says that we're supposed to give in such a way that no one knows. In fact, keep one hand from knowing what the other one is doing. So if I am doing good works in such a way that I'm giving like that publicly, and that's the main way, it doesn't seem correct. Well, then maybe it's my praying. Maybe I should pray in such a way that others see how prayerful I am. And then you think, eh, no, Jesus says, don't pray publicly in such a way that everyone hears all of your bundled up words. Instead, just go to a closet and be quiet somewhere and pray. Be in secret. Okay, well, then maybe it's fasting and other kind of penance that people could see, obviously, how spiritual I am. Gong showed again, right? No, don't. When you fast, don't. Put on better makeup. Look normal. Don't be strange like that. So I'm led to believe that in addition to a pious life, and in addition to doing all those things because we're called to do them, that it might not be the main avenue by which we are called to do good works. Perhaps we should start by asking, what is the meaning of these basic words, good and work? And then it begins to dawn on us that when Peter says, let your conduct among Gentiles and your good deeds, perhaps they're much more normal than merely religious. Perhaps good work should be just that, good work. And I begin to think about the ways that it'd be possible for others to see good work and glorify God. Isn't this interesting? Jesus says this, do good work, such good works in in a way that not that you're going to glorify God. It's not like you do good work all day and then when you go to bed at night, you're glorifying God and saying, I love the good work I did. He imagines something done so well and pressed out into the world that those who are irreligious and do not know the Father glorify the Father. You ever been with somebody who's a really good cook? And it becomes almost a religious experience. They put something on your plate and you eat it and you're just just like, wow. Imagine a piece of fried chicken so good. It makes you just say, thank you, Jesus. I'm not even religious. 
That's the picture Jesus is giving here. That there could be work so well done that it taps into a God-given, creative, image-bearing, good, beautiful, true aspect of all humanity that that kind of work is going to make people pause and rejoice. That's amazing. And so I think about the opportunities we have for doing good work. The reality is, is that this moment together is very little of our weeks. About six months ago, we asked you to fill out a skill survey. It was anonymous, and some people gave info. But one of the basic questions of this is, where do you spend a majority of your working time? Where do you have to, to have your vocation? Where do you go to work to get paid? 138 people filled out that survey. 138 people. And I've been told by people who work in the survey business that this is a pretty good result because I think probably three to four times that number maybe call Four Oaks Midtown home. That's kind of like, this is our place. And somebody told me in survey world, if you get anything more than maybe 10% or less than 10% somewhere around there that you're doing pretty good, which sounds like a dismal world to be a part of. Like in baseball, you at least got to hit 280. But in the survey world, 11%, here's a raise, I guess, is how it works. So 138, I want to say thank you. A bunch of you filled this out. And now let's imagine together what kind of work. Here's the amazing part. We have a salty, shining program. I want you to know this. I'm just instituting it right now. It's the easiest church program we've ever put into practice. Starting tomorrow morning, on a Monday morning, we have the salty, shining program of God glorification in the world, trademarked Four Oaks Midtown. It doesn't even need an administrator. It doesn't need someone to cajole or to sign up for special volunteering. Based on this survey, and I'm going to extrapolate from 138 to maybe three to four times, so I'm going to imagine, you know, one of my favorite little puns, somebody said there are two kinds of people in the world, those who can extrapolate from incomplete data. And so what I want to do is I want to go through this skill survey, <laughs> and I want to estimate, I want to estimate what would happen I can't wait for some of you to ask what that meant after this. <laughs> anyway, here's an estimate of our salt and shine program starting tomorrow morning. There are likely anywhere from 3 to 5% of us, so 15-ish in a ballpark, who are going to engage in good work as a lawyer or in the field of lawmaking and policy. There are likely 12 to 15 of us who are going to engage starting tomorrow consistently producing good work from the image bearing of God in them in the area of arts and beautification and communication through graphic design. There are potentially 10 to 15 of us who are going to leave starting tomorrow morning and the good work that's going to be ushered into the world is that we, are, we work consistently in development and real estate. We help imagine new things in new places and in new industry where it doesn't exist. We help to usher people into their dream homes so that they can live with their family. There are likely some 20 of us, if not more, who are engaged specifically in accounting and financial uh, abacus using. <laughs> there are likely around 20 of us engaged in marketing trying to capture the imagination and the minds to inspire and to pull the attention of people in the world. Probably 15 to 20 of us plus engaged specifically in engineering, making things safer, more efficient, and better in our world. 
probably 25 to 30 of us, probably nearly 10% go to a place of small business employment or management and executive function in a larger business, working with integrity and honesty to ensure the free flow of goods and services and money. Probably 12 to 15% of us work directly in government agencies, working to faithfully execute the will of our legislature in the laws that govern the way our society functions. Tomorrow, my best estimation is between 35 and 40 of us will engage specifically in the health care needs of people who come to nursing stations and PA offices and doctor's offices and need to be therapied and stretched so that their hip works and can go to work the next day. There are likely 35 to 50 of us who are engaged more than full-time in educating our children and teaching them the ways of Scripture and giving to them the instruction and discipline necessary to make a home flourish for God's image bearers to be sent out into the world. And perhaps the biggest category, and I've only done the biggest categories that come out of something like this. There are dozens and dozens that are unnamed, stretching from, from being involved in athletics and coaching all the way to building and construction. But perhaps the biggest one in the whole thing is there are likely more than 50 of us that call this place our home that will be engaged in the education of students, imagining truth and designing ways to communicate it so that it's attainable and applicable and used to glorify God in the world. Jesus says, you are salt and you are light and you're going to carry me with you into the world and the opportunity we have is to do good work. And the amazing thing is that that good work is a speech. The light that you carry will offer light. The salt that you offer will bring out flavor. And people will say, glory to God, I want to thank someone for this. C.S. Lewis wrote a series of essays that are compiled in a little book called The World's Last Night. He laments what he believes to be one of the, the worst consequences of a fallen world, and that is the neglect of good work. He says, many people think that we have progressed, when really what has happened is we have turned the activity of good work into a strictly business enterprise. The best of companies have entire departments focused on planned obsolescence. When you buy that shovel... It's designed to break. The idea, Lewis says, is that good work, not only done morally, so good works, I don't want to remove moral or what you might call religious activities of this. Of course, we should be honest and have integrity. We should do things prayerfully. We should avoid those things in work that would be displeasing to God and his commands. But also that our good works are leading toward actual good work, the intrinsic value of the thing that we produce and create in the world. Lewis imagines the beginning of his, his essay on this idea of good works and good work. The first miracle recorded by Jesus and how seamlessly it combines these two things. You see, Jesus was at a poor wedding party 
They hadn't planned correctly. They'd run out of what the guests needed. They were scrambling. Anyone who's been involved in weddings know that they probably were short on money and resources. And so Jesus says, I got this. I'm going to give. And he turns water into wine. And it's not just that he turned water into wine. The story could have stopped there, Lewis says. And everyone would have said, that's amazing. Look how generous Jesus is. He gives to those who are in need. He sacrifices when it was inconvenient. Or whatever it was, you could say that. But it wasn't just that. His good works were also good work. Everyone said, wow, who made this wine? This is the good stuff, is what they all said. It's not shoddy work. Where did these grapes come from? Who had the knowledge to put this thing together? And Lewis says, the thing that Jesus was offering to the world was not just good works in a moral sense, which he had perfectly, but also a recapturing of the creative instinct of good, sturdy work. So he goes on to say that Christians ought to be the kind of people who insist on great works of art and good works of charity, but that those things better also be good work. He has a little line. He says, May it be said that we should let every choir endeavor to actually sing well or not sing at all. And I could be taken with a grain of salt. But the idea here is that we are inevitably placed in the world by God to be salt and light. This isn't a striving matter. This is an identity matter. And tomorrow I am so grateful. I am so grateful for the witness of Jesus that happens through quiet, good, consistent, faithful work. The number of times that I interact with people who know you and know nothing about church or nothing about the spiritual part of your life, but they say, oh man, they do great work. Delights my soul. And so may we imitate this Father who's to be glorified. Here's what the Father did. The Father took His image and stamped it into the world. He created, and then afterward He said, this is good. And now, because we've been reclaimed by Jesus, we are able to create in the world to stamp His image, the image of God shining through us in the power of Christ so that others around will look in and they will repeat the refrain of God over all creation. They will say, this is good. This is good. I don't even know yet what you believe or any of that ethics stuff or rules or commands or church stuff, but this is good. What is this? This is good. And I believe what Jesus is inviting us to imagine is that this is a great form of strangeness. Perhaps this is the kind of strangeness that would bring life and zest and preservation. Perhaps this is the kind of strangeness that would let people see. And that's what we pray for.